Fiction is First is pleased to present Michael Patrick Flanagan Smith reading an excerpt of his story, The Book of Lou. The following is part one of two. The shovel cut its way into the red dirt clay and angled up quickly by the sweating boy flipped a chunk of that dirt out, away from the formless hardened flatness of the whole big earth and into a small shovel-shaped clay sculpture that sat on top of the planet, crumbling in the weeds. He'd been digging all morning but made little progress. Now the sun reached its way high into the blue, stretching like a man just woke up. And it was hot. The boy paused in his toil, wiped his red brow with the back sleeve of a work shirt, Shit, he said. And he stood over his work with the thumb hitched into his jeans and spat into the earth like he'd seen men do. The wheat field stirred in the arms of a breeze that blew through it. Tall glass leaned with the wind in the morning sun, dandelion skeletons floating past. The day was dry and gaining heat, but the earth was cool, damp, and it smelled that way. Standing by the fresh dug hole, the boy inhaled deeply through his nostrils. Funny how dirt gives off such a good clean smell, he thought. He thought about his last school field trip. They were going to Washington, D.C. to view our nation's past, the teacher said. And on the way there, the bus passed a dairy farm. Windows were rolled down and the rich smell of manure blew right through that bus. He remembered closing his eyes and breathing it in, a wonderful smell. When he opened his eyes... The other kids were holding their noses, making noises like girls, high-pitched squealing sounds. Even the boys were making those noises. It embarrassed him, but he held his own nose, too, so as not to be singled out. He then felt ashamed of himself. Well, enough daydreaming, he said out loud, scolding his own self before spitting again and getting back to digging. He stopped at the first shovelful. Why in the hell the old man want me to dig this hole out here in the middle of this field anyhow for? Shaking his head, he continued with the digging. No point in trying to understand the old man, he thought. Be like trying to figure out the whole universe. Or a woman. Be like trying to figure out the thought process of a woman. He had heard somebody say that, of course. He was too young to understand why he wasn't supposed to understand women. Shit, he said. A bumblebee careened past him, loud, foolish, and Hunter bounded after it. She came at it too fast, jaw snapping, and skid past the bee and into the tangle of brush before it. Then she turned awkwardly on her belly, swinging her bulk around as fast as she could, and made another go at the insect, overshooting it a second time. The boy watched. Hunter crawled slowly now, hurried still, but with something not unlike stealth. Her tongue waving out of her mouth, eyes always on the bee, she moved below it, belly pressed to the ground, tail swishing through the tall wheat grass to where the bee hovered just above her. The great salt and pepper mutt shepherd leapt up at it, her torso extending, big jaws snapping as she tried to ensnare the bumble without getting stung. She missed. Dumb dog, boy said. Hunter leapt again, snarling and angling her snout around the bee, almost getting above it before snapping her jaw shut, again missing, and coming back down on her forelegs. The bumblebee dallied no longer. 
It shot off across the field in as straight a line as an imperfect thing can draw. It headed toward the tree line, some thirty yards off, down the gentle slope of hill, past the rusted-out tractor engine, the spot where the goats are buried, and it flew into the woods. Hunter tumbled along after it, leaping and snapping and falling and missing the whole damn time. The boy smiled watching the dog. He was thinking about all the dogs in the world and wondering what bumblebees are made of, when the sound of the back door slamming yanked him out of his reverie. He jerked his head towards the house. It was the old man. Head down, leather cap pulled low over his face so the boy couldn't see his eyes. The old man was filthy already and he hadn't even been outside. His overalls were covered in grease or something. The shirt he wore was a mess. He moved deliberately down the back porch steps onto the pine needle floor of the backyard and through those sparse evergreens to the gate that led out the field. The boy watched his father mess with the latch on the gate. He knew right then that the old man was in one of his moods. He could tell. He could see it in the man's shoulders, the tension there, and the way his hands moved too fast and unhitching the gate, banging up against the steel railing and had to stop themselves, steady themselves to do it again, this time more deliberate. The boy could picture his father's knuckles as he handled the latch. He probably cut himself open moving that fast, banging around against the hitch, he thought. His father got the gate undone, swung it open, and walked through. He barely paused to close it behind him, not even stopping to rehitch the latch. Gonna let the damn horses out, the boy thought. He shook his head, watched his father walk toward him, one deliberate step after the other after the other. The boy got back to digging. The shovel crunched into the earth and overturned it. A small cloud passed over the sun and revealed it again. Hunter barked. The father's shadow passed over his son and stopped. The boy kept digging in that shadow. Here I am, the man said. The boy stopped, looked up at him, remained silent. This all you got done? I ain't got any more done. The old man spat. You've been out here near two hours. I know how long I've been out here. The boy spat. You getting smart? No, sir. He wiped his forehead against the sleeve. His father looked off towards the tree line and wiped blood on his nose with a fist. If anybody was watching, they would have told you the boy was trying to be like his father. Or maybe he wasn't trying, but anybody watching would be hard-pressed to come up with the right word for it. Perhaps it was that the trying had, at some point, been of such force as to ingrain itself into the very matter of the boy in some deep, archaic way, like it was tattooed on his skeleton. Maybe that's what blood means. You got blood on your knuckle, the boy told him. What? Blood on your knuckle. It's on your nose, too. The old man seemed to take the news hard. His forehead screwed up and his eyes darted from trees to earth to boy, but he didn't wipe his hand across his shirt to clean it, and he didn't wipe his clean hand across his nose to clean his nose. Where's the dog? Hunter run off by them trees down there. You want me to get her? You go get her, Llewellyn. I'll dig a spell. Llewellyn passed the shovel to his father. Okay, Dad. Raced off across the field. Damn fool's got blood on his face, ain't even gonna wipe it off. Llewellyn shook his head as he ran. He thought about his cousin singing, Crazy Old Man Abraham, turning his father to a rhyme when the old man left the room. 
It made him angry to think about it. But then he let it go. It let him go. Because it felt good to run. The sun felt good. His lungs felt good. The pumping of legs and fists hard against the ribcage. All those things felt good. Better check myself for deer ticks once I get out of here, he thought. Gonna have to give Hunter a good checking, too. He raced down across the field, past the rusted-out tractor motor, the place the goats are buried. He had seen Hunter pull herself under the fence after losing sight of the bumble, so he slowed there, climbing up and leapt it over, coming down easy onto the slick, wet leaves of the forest floor. It was cooler in the woods, thick foliage overhead keeping out most sun. The dark wetness of it gave strong contrast to all that shoveling, the dry heat of the open field. Trees must got cool breath, he mused. He lost his footing, slipped down onto a knee wetting his jeans in the soil. Damn, he said, because he figured it was something he ought to say, brushing the dirt from his pants. He didn't mind getting dirty, he liked it even. Hunter! Hunter! He whistled for the dog, made his way through the wood. The land here slanted gradual-like toward a small ravine that snaked through trees a couple hundred feet down off the fence. In some places, it raked steep, sodden-like, but he knew the lay of this part of the wood and had no trouble with it. He moved carefully. Hunter! Come here, girl! He could hear her now. Her jagged breathing, the rattle of metal clinking around her collar. He whistled. The dog raced past him and towards a ravine, weaving through trees. My whistle ain't no good, he told himself, and he was right. The dog certainly didn't respond to it. He heard the stream bubbling down below and whistled again anyways. Dog barked and boy caught a glimpse through the foliage of Hunter leaping off the bank and into the water below. Dumb dog, he thought. Ain't got no more sense than the old man. He got to the edge of the stream himself. Water moved slowly at this spot where it widened. The ravine deepened. Hunter was swimming upstream. She paddled against the current with blissful enthusiasm, moving slowly in the opposite direction of that which she faced. The boy called her, and she surrendered happily as it unburdened her of the necessity of rallying against an impossible task. Turning her head, the tongue-waving sail of a great ship, the dog paddled back to the bank. She whined. She reached the water's edge, tossing her forelegs up onto the bank. The current fought to steal off with her ass. Llewellyn watched Hunter struggle, slipped back into the pool of water, barking, whining as she regained her bearings, tried again, to no avail. Llewellyn moved carefully down the edge of the steep bank, found a spot downstream where he could get footing and called Hunter. She responded again to the boy's call, turning, paddling downstream to meet her young master. The boy positioned himself in front of the dog, pushing the heels of his boots as deep he could into the rough-hewn, rocky, wet riverbank soil, crouching down onto his haunches. The boy and dog looked straight into each other. Hunter, forelegs on the steep incline of shore, was again in danger of getting washed further downstream. Llewellyn, careful to keep balance and avoid getting too wet, hooked his hands down under the big dog's front legs where they met her torso. He felt cold stream water on her coat and the warmth that came from inside her. Hunter continued paddling with her hind legs. The boy leaned back for balance and pulled her to him. It was a slow, strong pull. He eased her to him, 
At first, Backpaw found solid ground. Then the other and the dog launched herself up out of the stream with all the grace of a fullback. She came at him like a ram. Llewellyn, lucky to catch himself with the heel of a palm before spilling backwards onto the muddy rocks, pushed the dog to the side with his other hand and managed not to get run over too bad. But Hunter was licking his face before he caught balance and he landed in the mud anyway. He shook his head, shooed her away, eased himself up. He brushed mud off the seat of his pants and watched the dog race herself in a circle three times before stopping to shake the water off her coat. Llewellyn saw it coming but didn't move and got wet. You're making a mess of me, dog. He laughed, watching her, stupid and happy she was. The boy looked himself over. He was a mess. Wet and muddy, river smells and dirt smells and wet dog smells all mixing together with pine sap and moldy leaf smells. He inhaled deeply through his nose and liked it. Come on, girl. Let's get back up the hill. He swatted her hindquarters, turned, began walking back the way they'd come. The dog followed dutifully. The two marked time by the steps they took, pushing their way up the forest incline back toward the fence. The boy stepped through a spiderweb the way up, had to, had to stop to pull it off him, sticky and strange. A spider ran through his hair. He caught it in a hand, just gentle not to squish it, tossed it off before it could crawl across his neck. The dog panted at his side, waiting for the boy to get moving again. Llewellyn knelt down and faced her, ran fingers through the fur beneath her jaw, took the loose skin there in his hands rough-like. She liked it, licked his nose. He closed eyes, felt the messy tongue on his face, then stood, trudged back up the hill, wet jeans weighing him down. She came after. They reached the fence and paused. He looked across the field at his father. The father was digging. He looks like one of them big machines they had that find oil or pump oil or something in Texas, the boy thought. All jerky and fast, mechanical, going in and out, in and out. It gave the boy pause. His mouth turned slowly down into a frown. The old man looked up. Tie that dog the fence there. Come on back here and join me. It was useless to argue. Several long lengths of baling twine were bound at the fence between a few posts along the tree line. Llewellyn remembered what they had last been used for and it stopped him. Then he got moving again. Some of the pieces were cut through, but most longer strands, uncut, were tied closer to the place the goats are buried. A horse was buried there too, but Llewellyn had never known the animal, a white gelding, it once belonged to his mother, Sarah. She named it Passing On By and called it Passing for short. That's what his father told him anyway. He had a picture of his mother when she was young, riding the gelding through the lower paddock with her long hair trailing behind her like yellow exhaust pouring out a muffler. It was a sun-filled day and the horse was at full gallop. Whoever had taken the picture was not a very good photographer, the boy figured. It was blurry. But at the same time, it gave the image a certain feel, and of the few pictures he had seen of his mother, it was the one he spent the most time studying, as if this blurry photo of his mom on a horse called Passing could make some sense of something. Anyways, Llewellyn collected the various lengths of baling twine and tied them end to end using knots he had learned out of a book on sailing. 
He wanted Hunter to have as much room as possible, and by the time he was done, the rope reached a good twenty-some feet. The twine was dry, brittle in his hands. He paused, rubbed one wrist, then the other. He whistled, and the dog ignored him. He called her, and she came, obediently trotting forward, sitting at his feet, breathing as he fixed the twine into a knot around her collar. Good girl, he said. She looked up at him, panting. Good girl. The boy put his hands on the dog and tousled her coat in affection. He ran a hand over her head and slapped her shoulder with an open palm. Took a breath and began making his way back to the hole in the ground. His stomach felt all no good. He fought to banish his thoughts, but each step closer to the hole pulled him further out of the present. He continued across the field. The old man looked like a fugitive in a movie, digging a tunnel to escape through. That concludes part one of Michael Patrick Flanagan Smith's excerpt of the Book of Lou.